At this point, you should be on the frame with a film strip title that says Oral Hygiene. partners this is oral hygiene and this is matt your host uh actually this is the first time i've straight up been i guess hosting solo because today we have a proper guest that is craig campobasso who um we first brought in to talk on our on my other podcast the sci-fi sanctuary about dune because he'd worked on that movie and once we got him in um he he really worked on that movie for four years and we we get some Hollywood talk uh, out of him in that one, but he also does a lot of metaphysical work. Um, you know, looking at aliens, eighty-two species of aliens. He's got a book about that, and I wanted to get metaphysical and weird with him, which which managed to work out in this particular podcast. So I hope you enjoy the ride. Uh, the thing that you know makes me sit quite uneasy is as my first hosting job solo. Um, the conversation's great, but I make like 87 pronunciation mistakes. I think I get his name wrong. I think I actually got the name of the movie wrong. Um, a few other things, but if I'm going to have like a horrible, you know, disconnect in my mind while I'm doing, you know, doing something for the first time, I guess that's not so bad. I think you're going to enjoy the, uh, conversation and we'll be trying to get a few more outside guests for this podcast and getting some uh some of those interesting documentaries i i started off the show and did the first 20 episodes uh increasingly screaming weird documentaries in stranger and stranger ways uh now i i really want to get some of the documentary filmmakers on uh in this case it's more of a proof of concept movie it's not a documentary though it's based on a book um, but this is a proof of concept movie, Stranger at the Pentagon, which, you know, the the idea is that it eventually crops up as a feature film. But I think it's in the purview of what we do here. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Oral Hygiene. This is the podcast where we talk about educational films, experimental caught films, strange documentaries. Today's movie almost ticks a lot of those boxes, but it is a uh, short film. And, and we've got the pleasure today of actually having the man who made it here. It is a stranger in the Pentagon. And we have uh, Craig Campobello here to talk about it, the director of the movie. Good, good afternoon. Well, it's uh, early evening and just it is stranger at the Pentagon. A lot of people always think it's in the Pentagon. And 
Campo Basso, not Bello. Just, just sorry, my brain. But Bello, but Bello is okay. Yeah. I don't mind. And you know what? I have heard every version of my name. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I my my or my early morning podcasting gets a little weirder than my uh, prime time <laughs> podcasting. You know. <laughs> so so no worries there. I caught myself on the preposition as soon as it came out because um, it's right above your head on this image. <laughs> there you go. Right, right. So uh, I always tell people, remember it like an Italian. Campo basso, campo basso, campo basso. Yeah, that's what I did, it. but I was like... Then you remember, and then you got bello. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a cello player. I'm always thinking about cellos. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> so... Mm. Um, Craig, if I could, I get you to do sort of that uh, short TV guide summary of this one. I will, sure. It, uh, Stranger at the Pentagon is a book that was written by Dr. Frank Strangers that was released in 1967. And how this book came about is a created being named Valiant Thor uh, came uh, and met with President Eisenhower, uh, the Vice President Richard Nixon, on Saturday, March 16th, 1957. He came here with a divine design to help eliminate poverty, sickness, how to prolong life, talk to them about uh, nukes and uh, uh, free energy and all of, all of the bad things that were being done to the planet. Uh, he was put on uh, VIP status for three years. And then at the end of uh, those three years, uh, the powers that be turned it down, although Eisenhower and Nixon were for it because they said it would put doctors, nurses, and pharmaceutical companies, electric companies, et cetera, out of business. So I, I, can't, I can't say I have a problem with some of that, but... Uh, right. <laughs> something, something I was thinking, looking at this, um, I don't know, uh, in, in ufology, I think there's the often the, is it 1955 meeting with Eisenhower? It's 53, 55 something. Is, is that a Well, he, he met with several races throughout uh, his tenure as president as well. So um, Pleiadians, um, there, there were uh, uh, human extraterrestrials that came to uh, tell, uh, tell the military uh, that Valiant Thor was coming as well and uh to prepare for him on that date um there were also other meetings with other extraterrestrials uh like the greys which was uh also uh said to have been done for an exchange of um uh, uh technology and that the greys would give us technology and uh, and then uh, there there were a lot of parts to what they wanted, but they wanted to be granted and invited to Earth and have have bases uh, underground Earth, and that they could from time to time pick undesirables off the street to examine them and put them back. So, so here we're looking at uh, people literally, or well, beings literally straight out of Venus. We are well, Venus. You know, here's here's the thing. When I when I was first getting into all of this, and and going in, and we all know you can't live on the surface of Venus, right? Right. <laughs> but then, but then, as I start to uh, 
meet various people who had either been to Agartha on Earth, right, and explained what that was, and then Valiant Thor explained to Dr. Frank that all of the planets are created hollow so that beings can also live within the planets. And the reason for that is, is because you are not getting the outside elements like the sun that ages you. You're not getting bombarded by meteorites and other things that are uh, coming into the planet. So you are more protected by living underground. Now, in Agartha, for instance. And, and let me just real quick chime in there. That is the one that's supposed to be under Mount uh, Shasta. I can't pronounce anything. Shasta. Today. Shasta. Shasta. Thank you. <laughs> Mount Shasta, but uh, partially, partially. Agartha is the entire subterranean world underneath the ground on Earth that goes all over the planet. So the Lemurian capital is Telos, which is below Mount Shasta. And then the, uh, the Atlantean uh, one is called Posid, and that is under the Mato Grosso in Brazil. And then the, the main um, uh, city is, uh, oh God, uh, Shambhala, the greater, which is below uh, the Himalayas. So, but there are many, many other cities throughout and they have bullet trains that, that ride on sort of electromagnetic energy. Uh, and I was told that it would take, if you went from Telos and California all the way to the Himalayas, it's only about a two hour ride. The train goes that fast. Yeah, I've heard the uh, metaphor. Now I'll just tell you, I'm a guy that I, I like to go with the, um, the maxim that I don't believe in anything so I can talk about right, whatever right. I want, you know? Sure, <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, hollow Earth is a very fun thing to think about. And just, um, you know, I've heard the idea of, you know, you take an orange, the surface of it's not going to be that interesting. Everything interesting is on the inside. <laughs> right, 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 right. And again, uh, none of us have actually experienced these things. I, I went in the dream state once where I astral traveled into Agartha. I did not see any cities. What I did see was a big subterranean uh, lake that was lit from the inside that glowed a beautiful sort of baby blue that was absolutely breathtaking. So, so all I can do is hear from other people and their stories. And we do have, I know we're not talking about Agartha, but if people are interested in that, look up the story of Richard E. Bird going into the inner earth, right? And also there's a book called The Smoky God that was done over a hundred years ago about a father and a son that actually went into one of the giant openings uh, at either the North or the South Pole, went in and actually lived there in, um, in Agartha and went to many of the cities and learned all about it before they came back out to the surface to talk about it. That's why before recording, I actually sent my dream along from several years ago because I'm like, okay, this is this was a clear going somewhere. Like, and I, I found more and more with dreams. Sometimes you know you're just encountering like dream creations, and occasionally it's like, hey, this this is something not um, just mind games with myself. So, 
Right. There are dreams that I call lucid dreams. So a lucid dream is when you wake up in the dream and you know that you're actually there. So you're astral traveling in your body. So when you're sleeping, you can travel to other places and things and see them. So you're actually having that experience, although it's just in your spirit body, not in your physical body. So you bring that experience back with you and it's incorporated into the, the whole of your, your, uh, mind uh body and soul so i, I had one uh, actually i managed one yesterday morning like the wild method thing i think i might right. have wasted it though i went into a restaurant i just started reading the posters like knowing they were dream posters that's great i don't know <laughs> so anyway the the theory is from what valiant thor uh, uh this created being which is basically an angel in human form um, explain to Dr. Frank that all of the planets are hollow and that they are all populated on the inside. They can also terrace the inside of planets into different floors like they do when they build big giant motherships. And when they do that, they have a thing called a synchrotron sky. So what they do is they put this, this faux sky up there. It looks like infinity, so if it was in daylight and you looked up into it, all you would see is infinite blue sky. And they call it a synchrotron sky because as the earth revolves or whatever planet revolves around the sun, that sky mirrors the outside because everyone has to sort of be on that time clock. You can't live in 24 hour daylight or it would mess up the system, right? So. I'm trying to get a visual metaphor. I don't know if this one I'll, I'll take with you or not. Um, I'm thinking of the Star Trek episode with the Dyson sphere and inside. I didn't say is, that. Okay, basically, I, I don't, I think they might have 24 hour light, but it's a, you know, solar system size structure right. with the right. sun in the middle and, yeah. you know, everything on the inside. So that's the, and everything on the inside. Right. So, so there are Star Trek has taken a lot of these concepts and even Gene Roddenberry had been known to have talked about, um, knowing that he was receiving downloads from uh, extraterrestrial races. He even went and uh, to channelings of a uh, of nine extraterrestrial, very advanced beings that were just called the nine. And he used to go to channelings and listen to the nine talk about all the spiritual things in the universe. And, and people could ask questions and the nine would answer it. So it was sort of a soul group of these very advanced souls that were no longer an embodiment. They were just of consciousness. So they were very advanced. Now go to Star Trek. What's the number on the Enterprise? It adds up to a nine. Oh yeah. There's seven, <laughs> there's seven, seven of nine, deep space oh. nine. <laughs> The nine is a reoccurring character of its own throughout the Star Trek series. If you get into it, I think I count around 12 or 13 once when I was doing an interview for Ancient Aliens because we were talking about that. So, um, so it, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very fascinating and it kind of, uh, we, we have to, even though we've, it's not our experience, it's definitely possible, and as we think of it, but uh, so 
when we get these explanations of how, you know, if you're an extremely advanced being, and we know these beings are coming from all over the universe, they're getting here in an instant, in a thought, because their crafts are based on thought. They think it to where they want it to go. They don't have to travel long, long distances to get somewhere. Now, um, I, I think I might have heard you mention this on our podcast, podcast that the uh, same sort of... Um, channeling fits the the law of one material from the early 80s i believe i don't know if that was you or not and, and one i've actually read is the uh, seth material the, from the 70s and that sort of has right the seth material vibe. yeah i read the seth material i i think maybe the first book like back in the 70s yeah. um i don't really remember it i i did not um the law of one but the but all of the beings in the universe basically believe in the cosmic law of one which means we we are all created from the very first primordial atom that expanded. We are all one and the same. So so that's what the cosmic law of one is. So no matter how evolved one race is, every race that is conscious and awake believes that we are all one. It's the dualistic beings like here on earth that egos take over and and believe that we are the conquerors. We are the this, we are the that. We're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. So uh, where where the conscious beings are all based uh, on love and all based on helping to raise this planet up into universal society so that we can join it again and then know uh, all of the splendor of going out into outer space and visiting other planets and learning about other worlds. I mean, that seems fantastical right now, but it's really not. It's not that far off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we again, we can't believe things. We we know things. And like we said, right. with the dreams, once you've watched, reclose your eyes and watch yourself blast into a new reality, it's like, well, that's a thing. <laughs> I knew I did that. It is. So. <laughs> it is. It is. And what we all have to realize is everything with us is based on our own reality. That's our belief system, is our reality that we create for ourselves every single day. I mean, right? it's like the, the, the uh, almost cliche sort of maxim of what um, you make your own reality. It's just, it, it, yeah. it's kind of slow. People get impatient, I think. But if you yes. do that and then you look over several years, it's like, oh yeah, that does work pretty well. If you want a car next week, um, I hope you got some money saved. <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, it really and truly is. And, and a lot of things just need a little bit of planning out. I mean, I've been, I've been at this for over 35 years researching. I've met with tons of contactees, uh, abductees, um, People who have who have met with extraterrestrials are still in contact with extraterrestrials, um, and uh, who have had experiences. Some have gone on craft. Some have gone on craft in their astral bodies. Some have gone physically on craft. Um, uh, actually, talking about stranger at the Pentagon, Doctor Frank used to go on Victor One Valiant Thor's craft, which is stationed at Lake Mead outside of Las Vegas. So when Dr. Frank would go to Las Vegas uh, twice a year, he used to hold the inner circle meeting for uh, lots of people who wanted to come and hear Valiant Thor information. A lot of it was spiritual and how to work on yourself. 
And um, so when he would go there, they would usually, when he was done, come and pick him up and they would bring him out to the craft and he would, he would stay there. So in the, in, within the first year of knowing him, he had gone, uh, he was going to Las Vegas and I knew that he was going uh, to the ship. And Dr. Frank was in his 80s. I mean, in his 70s when I met him, like, uh, like maybe 74, 73, something like that when I first met him because he passed away at 81. And I knew him for about eight years. So, um, so one day while uh, he was in Las Vegas, he called and it was, it was just a zero number right? No number. And I picked it up and, and he said, hello, Craig, it's Dr. Frank. And I was like, God, he sounds so young. I, I, I mean, that was my first thought. And, and we just started talking and talking and talking. And then I finally said, I said, Dr. Frank, you sound so young. I said, where are you? And he said, oh, I'm calling you from the ship. And so when you go on the ship because of the resonation fields, if you're on a walker, if you're blind, if you, no matter what your infliction, you go back to being perfect. That, that's right? definitely the coolest version I've heard of, um, you know, the eighties, I'm calling you from my car thing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm calling you from the ship. So yeah, they, they had the technology, even if he was sitting at home and watching TV um, primarily they called them by phone. He would have a special number if he wanted to call them on his phone that would go and connect to their craft. And, or sometimes they would come through his TV and talk to him there. Um, there was another contactee that was friends with Dr. Frank, who is now living on the ship. Um, he, uh, he was a Japanese man. He was very close to them. And actually they introduced Dr. Frank to him. And in his home, he actually had devices where they could come through uh, like a little disc that would sit on the ground and then their holograms would come up through the disc and then he could have conversations with them. Um, and he really liked their, they, they uh, of course they don't eat meat or anything like that, but they had meat substitutes like we do now. Uh, and theirs was made out of some kind of cactus because I asked about it. And so um, Vice Commander Dawn, who pretty much looked after uh, this man, would stock his refrigerator uh, once a week with the fake meat for him to eat. So, but when he became too elderly and over a hundred years old, they, bought a, they brought him on board the craft to live. So he would have an expanded life. I want to try the cactus, yes. <laughs> I do. I want to try it too. Of course, I'm, I'm, I live in Japan. I've, I've already tried the locust. <laughs> that, that was funny. Um, that was, um, we were at a restaurant, uh, uh, relatively elderly people, and they were, I was with my family, my, my wife's Japanese, my daughter, and they just for the um, service, you know, for the freebie, like here's a bowl of uh, soy covered locust. Um, oh. on, <laughs> I, I ate one on the plus side the taste was fine but <laughs> it's a bug <laughs> i know was it crunchy yes yes <laughs> my, my daughter was two at the time and I, she was just like tearing into them now she wouldn't eat them but uh no, yeah. yeah 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 so, yeah uh, I'm, i'll definitely oh go God. for the um for the um 
advanced uh, developed cactus stuff. Sure. <laughs> Sounds delicious now. Yeah, for sure. But um, we should dive a little bit into the production of this one. Uh, would I would I sure. be amiss in calling it a bit of a, a like a spec film, like a you know spec? So <laughs> yeah. So what I did is I I made the film as a proof of concept film uh, to sell it to uh, to use it uh, as a tool for investors to say this is what we could do with a little bit of money, so you can sort of see how the scenes play out. And there were over 80 visual effects, um, which I couldn't hire an ILM because that would have been millions of dollars. But I found somebody that could do a decent job, which, uh, which they were decent. And, um, and so uh, we, shot, uh, we shot the film in about three, uh, the main portion of everything in two days. And then... Uh, and then some other stuff in a couple of other days. So, but what happened was I was never going to show it to anybody. And um, the Burbank Film Festival uh, out here found out about it and said, we'd like to see your film. So I took it over and I, I showed uh, the head guy and he, he loved the film. But then at the end, I have a little segment with Dr. Frank actually talking about Valiant Thor. So it brings the viewer into the reality that this is a true story, right? Mm-hmm. And that blew, that right there blew his mind because he had never heard of the story. So he made it an official selection. And so we, so we, we, uh, uh, they put it in a theater at the AMC in Burbank that had their biggest theater that had 275 seats. There were so many people that wanted to see it. Every ticket sold out right away at 15 bucks. But there was an after party afterwards for free at IATSE uh, sound stages. So, um, and it was, uh, it went, uh, it was so popular that, uh, Eileen Davidson, who had played Dina Thor, had just gone on the Housewives of Beverly Hills. So all the Housewives came out <laughs> to the Burbank Film Festival and we were actually on the show, right? So, so that gave us a little bit of press and a little bit of publicity there on top of, um, there, were just, there was just such a, a uh, a giant frenzy of people that wanted to see it. So they put on a second show at midnight and they filled half of that, that theater half full of the rest of the people that wanted to see it. And so then everyone around the world wanted to see it because everyone knows this story really well and they wanted to know more about it. So, so therefore um, we won another festival and I just didn't want to like do the festival route. I wanted to work on, you know, really trying to raise the funds for the feature film and work on the script and all the other things that we needed for the big feature film. And uh, so I, uh, I put it uh, online and I started doing lots of interviews and I traveled all around the US for a year showing the film and every audience was anywhere from 200 to 500 and some places 600 people would come out to see it. And when I did radio shows on it, um, I remember one I was doing up in Canada 
and they only spoke French. So there was an interpreter. And of course, I thought it was just going to be on audio. So I'm like, it's late at night. I'm in a T-shirt. And, and then there, I, I was like, boy, there's an awful lot of noise in the background. What is that? And they turn the camera around and they are in a gigantic theater that is filled to the gills of people who came to hear me talk about Valiant Thor and Stranger at the Pentagon on this podcast. Instant stage fright, is it? <laughs> well, it wasn't instant stage fright for me, but I would have just dressed up a little bit better, yeah. right? <laughs> Makes sense. So so there, there was a, a huge thing. So if people want to see it or learn more, they could just go to strangeratthepentagon.com or in the UK or in America, you can watch it on Amazon Prime. And I managed it with no problem in Japan. So I think oh, good, good. <laughs> you did on uh, on the website. It's I think Vimeo is it? Yeah, so, yeah. It takes you. It'll take you to Vimeo. Right. Yeah. It was, Very good. I, I hadn't done a movie that way, and it was uh, for anyone that's interested. It's quite simple to do it that way. So uh, yeah. Um, I guess one of the things that I, the thing that sticks in my mind the most. I have, I have two things. Your uh, some of the design elements. One. Um, those are some fantastic uniforms. So <laughs> I love those. Yeah. Well, you know, we, um, my casting partner, when she was alive, we used to rent space at Eastern Costume in the Valley. So we were very close to the owner at Eastern Costume. And, and you know, it's really fun to go in the big giant back room where there's just millions of costumes, right? So uh, when I made the film, I called the owner and I said, look, can you make these for me? Uh, I, I've had a costume designer design them. And uh, so he had his guy in the back make them. And when I went to pick them up, he told me, he said, Universal was here and they were doing a sci-fi thing and they wanted your spacesuits. <laughs> and, and I told them they couldn't have them. And then I found out that the man who uh, sewed them and built them is the one who built all of the original spacesuits for the first Star Trek movie. That, uh, that, yeah, I was thinking of the motion picture scene, though, so that makes sense. That was amazing. I mean, it was just these little fun things that, uh, you know, that sort of came about. So, uh, you know, the only problem we had was, uh, you know, you could see everything through them. So uh, we had to... We had to be uh, very careful but I, shooting. I, I made a note here. There's, I think it's the first shot on the ship. Maybe we'd already seen the mostly blue one, but this is where we see a, the like mostly orange ones with the little blue. And yeah, yeah, when yeah. It, yeah. When, yeah. It first, when it first flashed to that, I was like, "Whoa!" I was like, "Oh, that's that's yeah. not skin." <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like that's a racy uh, costume. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. I swear it's probably the first time I think I've seen like Merkabas put on film. <laughs> yeah. Mer well, I call them Merkaba, but a lot of people call them Merkabas or whatever. And uh, so it's, it's the thing that the master teachers go through. So Yanaya is a, also a created being and he is a part of Valiant Thor's crew, his permanent crew on board his craft and Valiant Thor's craft is 300 feet in diameter. It's called Victor One. It's double-deckered. And uh, there's a hole where they keep all of the um, 
all of the craft and things under it. Like they have cars, boats, bikes, motorcycles, um, all of that. They keep that in the hole and because they have to get around on earth. And um, so uh, it holds 200 people. His main crew is uh, Vice Commander Teal, Dawn, Thawne, Zan, and then there's uh, the creative being uh, from Melchizedek, uh, whose name is Unaya. And then there's his associate, which is called Yo or Yeo. Y-E-O. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually, yeah, I just thought I had a weird urge a few years ago to like build my own Merkaba, which I basically did. You know, it's like I did. Well, I, we got the Japanese hot spring. So I just like just to make sure I'm in the sauna long enough and, so, and I'll, I'll do meditation exercises just to make sure I'm in there long enough. Right. So, right. but I'm like, yeah. hey, two, two birds with one stone. Right. And after a year, I saw, I think I was doing it like almost every day and then twice a week. And now I never feel the urge to do that particular one. I, I guess it doesn't need maintenance. That's a, yeah. <laughs> once, once you got it, you got it. Okay, that's once, cool. Once it's in, once it's inbred in you, it's it, it's inbred. So, again, am uh, I playing mind games with myself? Possibly, but I enjoy playing them. good mental exercise. But, <laughs> but you know, part of uh, the Merkaba is is when you're when you are becoming fully conscious, your seven chakras merge into the heart, and then what happens is. Um, uh, then two more come up above, and then is it two more? Let me see. One, two, no, three above and two below. And um, hang on, let me grab. I, I actually have it right here on my board. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is cool. So as you can see, then the Merkaba pulls the ones on the top down into the heart and the ones on the bottom down into the heart. And then we have the fully conscious or ascension uh, chakras open up. So uh, we have the two below and the three above and, and the fifth is the actual halo, uh, which is behind the head. So then we have all of the, all of the different colors from all the previous chakras then go around the heart and then it is sealed with a sort of cherry boss blossom pink for uh, love, which is around the heart. So, <laughs> so that's, uh, so, so that's how the Merkaba then comes because now when, once you're fully conscious, you can now move around in your own personal Merkaba. Just for like. the record, I'm not going to claim to be fully conscious yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not either, but yeah. I would sure love to travel in one of those. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I, just, uh, I, I feel like I go about my day to day in one of those. So that's cool, too. And, and yeah. you know, my, my days have been getting better over the past five years. So <laughs> good. Um, we like that. I've heard the one idea like, you know, let's say there's an entity telling me to do something really good or something really bad. It doesn't matter. Right. And then I go do that and it has a real effect on the universe. Well, that entity is real, whether I made it up or not, because it had an effect on, uh, you know, it's, on the it's, universe. It's true. So so basically here on Earth, um, 
you beings uh, beings of good or bad cannot come and and influence you in person or that kind of thing, but they can drop little thoughts into your mind, right? And it depends on where the person is. Like if it's if it's a person that is really down the pike doing drugs and that kind of thing, and they do it daily and they're just out, those thoughts are really going to turn dark. And that's why those people always said, I heard a voice tell me to do it. Right. Because right? it's a dark being telling it to do something because it wants it to destroy itself because it doesn't want anything that is good because they're not good. Then on the other hand, when you have something, usually what I have found is if I hear the faintest of voices in the back of my head, I know that's the one that I have to listen to. <laughs> yeah, okay, I can see that. I, I, yeah, yeah, I definitely... It is fun once you um, can watch the monkey mind. It's still going, but it's just like listening to it rant sometimes. It's kind of entertaining, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, here's here's something we talk about entities coming in and out. Um, I don't get this so much anymore. Uh, when I first started really seriously getting into meditation, I would see kind of with my eyes closed, like kind of holographic faces come and take a peek in and then kind of vanish. And now I don't get I'm thinking that maybe those are not the best ones to uh, focus on. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people and a lot of people also when they close their eyes and they're sort of going into uh, into zone. that sort of the zone that they will see um, scenes with people and this that makes no sense, right? Um, even somebody that is very close to me who is not really fully awake, brought that up to me just the other day and said, I see this all the time. What is that? Right. And I see it all the time myself. So my thought is I always wonder because they say that the spirit world is three feet off of the ground on earth. Right. And are we just sort of connecting into what's going on around us in the spirit world and seeing scenes of it? Yeah, my thought is maybe it's like they're like, hey, this guy's kind of noticing us. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I don't really know the answer, but uh, we can all sort of hypothesize to see, you know, maybe what it's about. So um, talking about, you know, decisions and doing things, Valiant Thor seemed to take a heroic choice in what he was trying to do. Um, oh, I, and I just got to put the quote down. Our system is only capable of disarming weapons. That was a fantastic uh, quotable. <laughs> yes, yeah. But yeah, the, at the same yeah. time, it seems like he basically made a bad decision uh, by <laughs> getting in with the uh, U.S. government. Well, I if you look at it from the standpoint of he came here, you would uh, created beings are beyond fully conscious. They know stuff beyond what fully conscious beings know, right? Because they are sort of really hooked into source or the Godhead or whatever you want to call it. And, and they are given specific missions and things to do. And they have, they are given territories of the universe to look after. So he probably knew that it was going to fail, but he also had a backup plan the way I look at it, because 
in December of 1959, Dr. Frank Stranges was giving a lecture for two weeks in Washington, D.C. And uh, Valiant Thor had befriended a very high level clearance secretary who belonged to that church. And Valiant Thor sent her to talk to uh, Dr. Frank and to bring him to meet him the next day at the Pentagon. So Dr. Frank's thing was he always talked about UFOs and the Bible. And that particular night, that's what he talked about. Um, when he passed away, his widow gave me his Bible and a, a lot of his artifacts that we're gonna be using in the movie. And in his Bible were all of his zillions of notes for over the years. And I found his notes for the two weeks that he was there in Washington, DC all those years ago and on the night that he spoke about UFOs in the Bible. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I've right? heard a lot about so, the Bible UFO connections, even just, you know, like it's it's the whole thing of if you see something, you can't understand what you're seeing. It's going to get described in a pretty weird way. <laughs> well, they, they were they were put into lots of paintings back then. They were um, they were etched into hieroglyphics in uh, uh, Mexico, uh, the Aztec society, the Egyptian society, uh, all of those things. Anybody that goes and does their research, they they will definitely see that, and they will definitely see a lot of ancient astronauts and things in their vehicle that that normal people actually sculpted. And kept. I have I have a friend that that has a lot of these things that they etched into stones that were found in Mexico. Um, has a collection of about a hundred of them, and I, I was able to view them. It's just fantastic. All different kinds of ships and the beings, and a lot of some of them were grays as well. We don't know if they were good grays or bad grays, but if they were interacting with them, they were doing it probably in helping them to evolve. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just, uh, you know, artifacts and things. I'm, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, yeah. So the, the fact that I haven't stepped outside of uh, barely steps out of my little valley in Nagano, it's just uh, every I can see now every segment of my life has I need to go a little farther. I need to go a little farther. And then I got here and then I just stopped. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's where it's you're supposed to be. It's a uh, Shinshu, the pure land, you know. You right, can, right, right, right. <laughs> you, you can make your own metaphors for your own life and uh, make your own legends, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I guess the thing that made me wondering, b besides the uh, kind of disturbing last shot with Giant Thor, is um, I just, the, the SSS, that's, that's one worse than the SS, so I don't trust those guys. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, we would call that, the, you know, they really are the corporations or the money guys who mm. rule the world, and they're the ones who actually rule it. They rule everything. The governments, everything is done through them, so... Well, that's um, two worse than the SS, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, but... Yeah, so that was uh, we we call it in in the movie the secret shadow society. Right, so. that's where I, I was too lazy to type yeah. all three words, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and my pun my my pun didn't work if I typed the whole thing out. So right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, um, 
the the guy I do this podcast with on Mondays, you know, if I say anything critical, I I need to tell you the last few movies that we did. Um, he he directs. I usually do the music for him. So you're talking to a guy that worked on Space Boobs in Space, which gets 1.9 on IMDb. <laughs> Dr. Humpenstein's Erotic Castle gets a 2.0. Stranger in the Pentagon has a 6.5, which is quite good for a short film. (laughs) That's good. No, 8.5. 8.5 on IMDb. Is it? Yeah, 8.5. Not what I'm looking at, but I'll give that sure. (laughs) Uh, Maybe maybe it could be the one in Japan. Maybe Uh, That's probably it. Okay. Because they do have different ones. The one here, it's a 8.5 in America. So. Okay. And anyway, yeah, I, like you said, there are a few um, effects that could be better, but it's a budget thing. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you right. the only one that, like, none of the space stuff bothered me. One, it mostly looked good. I mean, inky blackness, you can you can work with that. Uh, the ones, right. the only one that really took me out, just a touch, you know, um, I think were a couple of the helicopter shots that were not helicopter shots. I'm like, you can't afford a helicopter on a small budget, so it's fine. Yeah. No, we didn't have any helicopter shots. No, I know. It flew over a building like a helicopter shot, and it was digital. Oh, yeah. No, but that wasn't supposed to be a helicopter. The camera... I was just thinking how you'd film it, right? So. (laughs) Right, right. Well, the thing is, is that the camera is the is the secret voyeur that takes you from place to place in the movie so that the audience gets lit in on all the secrets. Okay. So when the camera rises up out and goes over Washington and then goes down below the CIA and then the scene starts there or when it goes to the the uh 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 Imperian's uh Georgetown home it goes down underground. So where the camera is, is like its own character. So it's not a helicopter. It's not anything like that. It was never meant to be that. It was just meant to be its own character that, that takes you and lets you in on the secrets. Oh, right. Yeah, I did. No, I did mostly like the effect. And and when I said helicopter, I thought that's how you would film it. And, you know, there's no budget for that. So right, right, right. Yeah, because all. Yeah. I mean, we we couldn't because and by the way, that CIA building was the one that was there at the time. It wasn't the one in Langley. They were building the one in Langley. So so it all had to be done by CGI. Oh, okay. So the building doesn't even exist. So yeah, again, yeah. I, I'm, I'm bringing that one up because otherwise I was like, you know, everything actually does work quite well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the designs have great creativity. And I, I was, I mean, I, that's the uniforms again, but just, Oh, it literally was done by the guy that did the uh, <laughs> motion picture. Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Star Trek, the motion picture. That's right. You know, the, the uh, Victor one is a very nice, classic looking saucer. I mean, even if we're just taking from an entertainment perspective, it's, you know, a, a nice right. version of the, the iconic 50s saucer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I don't want to eat up all your time today, but I would like to hear how, uh, you know, the steps about the feature on this one, how, how that's coming along. Sure. We're uh, everything. We have everything ready for the feature film. Um are I really want to uh, we're going to be half up in space so we're going to be on in the Victor class saucers in the fleets we're going to be in motherships starships and on the interior of Venus as well and so 
half of the movie is going to be up there and the other half of the movie is going to be in Washington, D.C. So so we're going to sort of have that sort of 50s element feel while we're on the ground and a more high resolution color wise to show the difference between the consciousness as well of on the earth and as above. So, um, so I have everything ready to go. I'm just, I'm talking to various investors. So all you wonderful people in Japan, if anyone is uh, wanting to invest, our budget right now is about 32 million to get it done right with the right stars and all of that. And I've been a casting director for well over 30 years. So I know uh, all, all about casting and getting the right stars and things of that nature. So, um, so anyway, we've, uh, we've created a, a really good pitch deck with uh, a killer trailer that we've sort of enhanced. And uh, we also uh, show the investors uh, the short film. But also uh, Ancient Aliens did a whole segment. After they saw the short film, they called me and wanted to do a whole thing on Valiant Thor. So I went on the show, talked about Valiant Thor. So they did an incredible story, which I was very pleased with. So uh, we, we direct everyone to see all of this and uh, that type of thing. So... Um, I've worked with a lot of huge producers, so I bring some of the big, the big wigs on board, and and uh, really all we need to do is uh, get all the deals rolling, and uh, and then we can go straight into pre-production. We have one of the top entertainment attorneys who will oversee uh, all the financing, uh, uh, dealing with all the investors, and will also be our production attorney. They've done over five to 600 um, studio pictures. One thing um, so. I just, you know, I, I don't make movies, well, I kind of make movies, but I, I, I certainly don't know the Hollywood system. I've heard over the past you know decade, like a mid-budget film like that, it's just harder to get rolling now. Well, actually it's not. It's, it's actually the perfect budget because that's a budget they want because you can get the stars, you can get the visual effects, this is a story that everybody really wants to see. Um, and one of the reasons why it was given to me is so that I would maintain that the integrity of the piece would stay. I've had many people approach me that want to change it and do this and do that. And I just turned them down, right? Because that uh, it was entrusted to me to do it right. And, and the story that we have is the story that was okayed. I'm, so, I'm glad to hear that because I, you know, mid-budget films typically, typically, you know, have a little more brains, right? Because your big budget yeah. one is often boom, which is also great fun at times. But, you know, if you want to make a point, <laughs> a mid-budget is right, probably right. the better route. <laughs> right. And, and we can definitely do all of these incredible visual effects and everything, you know, at that budget price and uh, do it. And, and it depends on where we shoot. If we shoot in a certain place, we can get a lot of money back, um, you know, through tax credits. Radio. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I, I don't understand money. It's really weird. Like the more law of attraction. I don't. Even, <laughs> I live in Japan, so I, I don't actually do taxes. I, 
I, you know, I know like I have this money in the bank and this is in my pocket and that's about as far as my, that's money, it. <laughs> my money mind goes. That's about it. Right. But right. Again, that's, that is, that's the universe I want to live in. So yeah, that's <laughs> it, it good. Works out nicely. <laughs> <laughs> we did mention your website a couple of times, but uh, since we're coming to the end here, could you uh, give it the folks that one more time? Sure. It's stranger at the pentagon.com. You can watch the uh, short film there. And I also have under uh, by book and DVDs, the all of Dr. Frank's four out of print books, including stranger at the Pentagon and outwitting tomorrow, which uh, Valiant Thor was the advisor on. Um, I have all four posters. I have the original book poster, the movie poster, uh, the Starship poster and the Victor One poster that actually has all of the uh, uh, blueprints for the craft actually on the poster. So, um, and so if people are interested in that, they can look there. They can also learn a lot more about the story by toggling through the pages. And uh, my other website is autobiography of unanet.com. I have a four part book series called The Autobiography of an Extraterrestrial. And then uh, my latest book, The Extraterrestrial Species Almanac, can also be purchased on that website by clicking on the upper tab, Other Books. And I'll just say I've um, enjoyed looking at the Victor One poster behind you for quite a bit of this podcast. So. Oh, right. It is right <laughs> behind me. It is right behind me. That's no, it, right. It, yeah, there's cool Victor, Victor One, and I think the movie poster's up there somewhere. Oh, yeah, That's there's the movie poster yeah. there i think that's a victor one one right that, that yeah that's right or, that's why i was calling myself yeah, a double victor idiot one. at the start that's it that's calling, it hitting yeah. the same stranger ad i'm like it's right there <laughs> right there is behind me how could you do that uh, again i'm, I'm going to claim it's because i woke up recently and uh sorry, sorry for name mutilation you can see my last name here is comages which uh <laughs> nobody can pronounce Actually, I, I can't, but I'm <laughs> glad you pronounced it for me. <laughs> Actually, in Japan, people can say it. It's all Japanese sounds. So that blew my mind. I was like, if the America, nobody can pronounce it. It's going to be worse than Japan. And I come to Japan, <laughs> right, right. Like, your son. I'm like, what? <laughs> how does how did you manage that? <laughs> That's but, awesome. <laughs> um, again, this this podcast is oral hygiene. Um, so I had to think if I got the name right. <laughs> but uh, you could get that at Twitter and Facebook and, and so forth. So Beautiful. Well, okay. thank you for having me on. And uh, oh, yeah. You know, I like to send people out with a thought. So um, could I give you to give them that thought? One, if, if you do have a statement, you want to give the people do that. But um, what if I want a tour tonight? What do I do? Well, if you want a tour... Actually, you know, what's really interesting is Teal, who is about 5'8". Um, she's very Rubenesque. She's the vice commander. She's really brilliant and smart. She is sort of a, um, she's a vice commander. She has red hair, green eyes, porcelain skin. She um, is one of Valiant Thor's top vice commanders. She can fly ships. She's a teacher. She teaches other beings across the universe about Earth. And she teaches uh, their contacts that they make here. They bring them on board craft and she teaches them about the universe and vice versa. But she also does things called night classes. And she does invite people 
if they really want to come, that they can come by just projecting their thoughts to Lake Mead, think about Teal and that they connect to your thoughts. And if you want, they'll bring you up in uh, your astral body and you can go to the night classes. A lot of people will not remember. I went to the night classes and Dr. Frank used to say to me, Teal says you're coming to the night classes." And I said, well, I'm not remembering. So every night I would say, I want to remember going to the night classes. And then I started remembering what was being taught. And then I started remembering all the different parts of the ship that I got a tour of. So folks, that's something you should try tonight. It did work sometimes. <laughs> that is, that is. And they can accommodate. I mean, you know, when you're in your astral body, it, it could be a million people. It doesn't matter, right? Because it's all, it's all infinite. So, uh, so it's kind of cool. Did you advance the film strip? Are you on the final page? Well done. <laughs>